Podcast One Production. Welcome to part two of the Great COVID Reset. I'm Adam Shand. We've talked about how Australia is well-placed for the future if we make the right moves. But the timing is another difficult question. Mark Pesci is one of Australia's leading futurists and technologists. His podcast, The Next Billion Seconds, is on Podcast One. He says there will never be a perfect moment for action. At some point, we'll have to make a leap of faith based on our best judgment. I feel like there's a lot of work in front of us, but I feel like we're also up to the work. And you could take a look at how people have really adapted. And I don't think anyone is at all happy with the world that we're in right now. But given the situation we're in, we are definitely making the best of this situation. And you can see some people are actually making the most of it. I mean, we have a lot of people who are at home who basically could be doing nothing, who are now learning new digital skills, who are now reaching out to help other people, who are figuring out how they can be useful in this. And I think that's a really Mm -hmm. encouraging sign. And I guess for decision makers, there comes a point, a bit like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you got to jump off the cliff into the water to get away. You've only got one choice left and you don't know what that's, that's, that's a moment for leadership. It is a moment for leadership. I, I mean, I think a good leader makes sure that they don't accidentally get backed into one of those situations that there's a choice about which cliff they get to leap off of because you want to leap off into the water and not into the jagged rocks. I think if you have that option in front of you. So some of that is around leadership as timing. Some of that's around leadership as trust me. And I think both of those qualities are really important right now. One of the things we can see, particularly in Australia, is the leaders are taking advice from all of the experts. And so that's giving you that level of insight that allows you to pick and choose where you jump. But yeah, at some point, it's just about, come on, we're going to be fine, jump. In your area and at your age, you've seen, A, a period of uninterrupted prosperity in Australia marked by a short recession in the 90s. I think it's been great. Um, at the same time, technology has been this wonderful predictor of the future. It's actually making, it has been making the future. How does that look now? How does what we did before look now? Was it sustainable? Do you think we can resume that path? I, I think that the path has definitely got a, quite a bit of a mid-course correction. One of the things that we've realized is there's certain classes of work that are really good at digitizing. And so we have um, a population here who's able to work from home, but then you have other classes of work that have really resisted digitization. You know, we all thought we were going to have self-driving cars and the package deliveries would be driven around by robots this year and next year. And that's not happening because it's actually turns out really hard to drive an automated vehicle when there are lots of crazy human beings running around. And so- (laughs) We're actually starting to revalue certain types of work. That delivery job, which maybe wasn't highly valued or highly paid, is now being seen as being essential and probably needs to be compensated associated with that. So we may actually start to see a rejiggering of how we as a society and as an economy value work based very much on how hard it is to automate that work and therefore Mm. how important it is if things get disrupted as they have. And so there's that resilience factor that will go in. All the signals seem to be towards Fortress Australia, going back Mm. within ourselves, looking to produce new manufacturing industries, reducing our reliance on fragile supply chains and things. What implications does that have for your business and your your field of, of expertise going forward? So that 
the, the Fortress Australia is what I definitely see happening in that 30-week period from, say, the end of May through the end of 2020, because we will not have much international travel. I don't think we're going to see consumer international flights the rest of this year, and not a lot of them until there's a vaccine or, or a set of really effective treatments for the pandemic. And so you're right, we're going to have this Fortress Australia mentality, and we're going to start to focus on, okay, we need to be able to manufacture almost everything that we need and we have manufacturing capacity but do we have manufacturing capability and it's going to be closing the gap between being able to do something and actually doing something and Australia is in this really interesting position because we are so smart because we are so digitized we should be able to build light manufacturing infrastructure that can make pretty much almost anything all the way up to an automobile on demand it wouldn't have the same cost structure as a massive car plant or a massive electronics plant. But again, you don't necessarily need to worry about that because you balance the fact that it can be made on demand when the country needs it against the lower cost. And that's always going to factor into our calculations now when we decide that we need something. Wow, making a car in Australia, what a concept, Mark. Hey? <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> Just to finish here, Mark, how are you feeling personally? Will we have to accept less our generation and those before it have seen, since the war, increasing prosperity, opportunities. All we had to do was stay in the one place and our houses went up and we were millionaires. So are we ready and resilient to accept less and how do you feel about it? So I've got a couple of feelings about this. First off, I make a lot of my income as a public speaker and that business has literally vanished and will not reappear for some amount of time in the future, we can't see that horizon yet, right? So I'm definitely very close to feeling this. I'm unemployed in a way I had never expected to be. On the other hand, the other thing I'm starting to feel now is that this feels like a kind of, you know, when you have a small child and they've gotten a little overexcited and you just basically put them aside and they have their time out and they calm down. This moment in Australia and actually around the world feels a little bit like a timeout. Everything was getting a little too excited. It's giving us a moment to reflect and to understand what's actually important and how we might be confusing things and how that might be sort of short-circuiting our emotions. And it feels like part of what we come out with is we might not be, I don't want to call it as materialistic, but perhaps so consistently on the go. We might think, oh, that was really nice to have a breath back there. And maybe that's something that reorients how we use our time and our wealth. I see that as very much a part of our future. I remember when I moved to Australia, one of the things that I was told was that Australians don't live to work, which Americans do. They work to live. And mm. I think over the 17 years I've been here, I've actually seen that shift you know, particularly in Sydney, which is an expensive city and also quite, I think, status conscious, that there's been a real shift around that. And it may be that some of these values are starting to shift back to their older form of why do we work? We work to enjoy our lives. Okay, we've dealt with the national settings, but what of us as individuals and in our professional lives? What can we control? What about our mindset? Margie Hartley is one of Australia's foremost executive coaches. She has a podcast called Fast Track about her conversations with CEOs. They must make some very big decisions in the next few months on incomplete and uncertain information. 
She invites all of her clients to ponder just who they will be as CEOs beyond the crisis. Building trust will be a key attribute of those who survive this transition. Well, I think there's an existential crisis that's happening across the board with people. I mean, people are saying, oh, I'm worried about anxiety emerging in this second phase of lockdown and I'm worried about this. But my my biggest, um, co- the, the most often conversation I'm having with my clients is about who am I and what do I want to be after this? What am I learning in this moment about myself and how I live and how I choose to live? And how do I want to be on the other side? Now, that's a big question that people have been too busy to answer. We've been sitting on trains and, you know, planes, on our phones, not looking at each other, not really having a conversation about who we want to be. And on a macro level, where is Australia, right? We've been the little sister to America and um, the Asian region and we've been, you know, thinking we have an identity but really not owning an identity since that post-war era. And I think this is the greatest opportunity for Australia not to be a puppet to others but have a new clear identity and own who we are. I don't want to be a little America or a little UK anymore. I think it's time for Australia to grow up and this is the opportunity for us to do it. My optimism is based on that community cohesion and the ascent that has got us to the point where we flatten the curve and we possibly will eradicate the virus. What we don't know, we keep hearing this phrase, the road out. I don't think there is a road. It's a space at the moment. It's not, a, it's not a, a road is in the normal sense where there's little guideposts on the side and there's little white dividers and we go down the road towards the destination. That's, that's where I think the real challenge is. And particularly if we have this recurrent issue of coronavirus being a seasonal outbreak for the next two to three years. I wonder whether we'll we'll all still be feeling this road out has a destination. It's really interesting. I think we'll just be heading west and we're always going to be heading west. There's always going to be the threat of this ahead and we're never going to really get there. And I think there will be changes um, in, in amongst it. Now, people are talking about working from home, but I actually think it's a little bit different from working from home. Um, I think it's going to be office space is more a gathering space rather than a working space. And Mm. I think nobody's sort of really talking about that. So what happens to commercial real estate? You know, there's shifts and spaces will be used differently now. Um, Somebody tried to tell me the other day that there would be a great globalisation. Well, I think we might be going to much more of a nationalistic way. None of us have a crystal ball. So what I'm really emphasising at the moment is the leadership needs to be clear about what we can do at this time and what we do need to be doing at this time. And I'm a bit worried That's at the really moment that there's a disconnect in the messages going out. That's a really good point, leadership. And leadership is usually based on weighing up alternatives, strategies, and so on and so forth. But we're in the fog still. What do the people that you consult to, what are they asking you? And, and how do you answer them when you can't, cannot give them a two-week, two-month, two-year horizon? Yeah, so it's interesting, Adam. I think that the leaders at this time need to be obviously calm and consistent and they need to also have a high level of care for their people. But the messages that are going out are not about panic, but they need to be about this cohesion that you're talking about. 
and helping each other. Because if we're individualistic in this moment, then we end up like America in the deep south where they're, they're, you know, I don't need to go on about that. We've all got the images there. And that's been building for 20 years. But I do think there's a great opportunity for people to gather their people together and focus on building the trust that's required in a team to come out the other side in, a, in an organisation. Because if trust is low as we move the road out of COVID, then you're going to be stuffed. If you're still in a low environment for trust when you need to act with ambiguity, really, I'll say it again, you're stuffed. So this middle section that I call the green zone, I've got a map for it, but as I talk to people all around the world, this is where we actually have to be really clear about the opportunities for us all to be taking notes about what may or may not happen, what's working for us, what's not working for us, the ideas that are generated, the insights. the So the co-authoring that happens at the other side is actually a process that brings everyone together and does work on trust and cohesion. If people are actually just waiting for the leader to tell them what to do on the other side, then again, things aren't going to work as well as they possibly can. I think it's time for real. One of the things that we've noticed in America at the moment is that the correction of the celebrities. Um, oh, look at me, I'm Instagramming and I'm live feeding from my home here, my big Bel Air mansion. And then people are going, I don't want to watch it. I don't want to watch that. Yeah. But they're listening to um, more real messages from people, people talking about their books or whatever's been happening for them. And so that connection all of a sudden has actually been, well, we don't need anything that's fake, we nailed what is real. And so I think good yeah. marketers have picked up on that right now and also good leaders. Um, and this is the rise of the leader who speaks the truth. What I love about that, that whole celebrity discourse and, and now people are responding to those videos from people in their mansions saying, oh, we're all in this together, which of course they're not, by saying, hashtag, give me your money. I love that. I, love I just it. love it. You know, yeah, if you yeah, want, yeah. if you really want to, if you want to address inequality, stop putting your multi-million-dollar lifestyle in my face and give me your money. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly right, exactly right. Or as as my daughter, who is an ICU nurse in um, one of the big hospitals, said, uh, "Stop clapping me and do something about the domestic violence that we're seeing. Do something mm. about the marginalised people who aren't getting." the first-class treatment that others with more money are getting. Let's not be that divide. Mark Burris is one of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and is the host of The Mentor on Podcast One Australia. As Australia comes out of isolation, he's concerned about misplaced optimism. The Commonwealth Bank was talking up a 10% lift in consumer spending in April, but ignored the reality that business confidence in Australia was at an all-time low, and growth in GDP would be curtailed for years to come. We have lived with an assumption, and which has been a reality, of positive GDP growth, in other words, country economic growth for the last 20-odd years. Um, and that assumption has been baked into the way we live our lives. That assumption is baked into the way we run our businesses and the way we incur our expenses within our business. Uh, that is, we are assuming all times that our business will grow, and most businesses have grown. 
Therefore, we can keep and hold our expense line, our expense profile. But if for some reason businesses do not grow, which is the most likely outcome right at the moment, or don't grow at the same speed they were growing at, which is probably a much more likely outcome, then that tells me one thing is that we've got to change our expense profile. We've got to change our assumptions around how much we spend. And if the moment we start reducing our expense profile, that is going to affect the amount of money that people have in their pockets, which in turn will reduce the amount of money people spend, which means that'll affect the amount amount of growth we have. Then so be it. It'll be this sort of ever-revolving door until we reach, reach an equilibrium. And I don't know where the equilibrium will be. But that equilibrium will reflect itself in the amount of unemployed people in this country and the wealth effect that we have as a result of the level of unemployment we have. Now, Warren Buffett says you can only tell who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. How many of our businesses have been swimming naked in recent years? Most. I would say a fair assumption is that we are growing. That is a fair assumption because, you know, Australia holds the most envied economic record in the world. We are the longest growing economy for the most number of consecutive quarters of any nation in the world, in history. So therefore, it was a fair assumption, whether you're in big business or small business, a fair assumption to assume growth in how you build your business, how you spend the money in your business, how you employ people, what rent you pay, how much money you can afford to borrow, um, what wages you pay, do you give wage rises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That assumption was a fair assumption to make based on our record, our envied record. Well, that record is about to change. We are about to join the rest of the world. We are now naked. We will not have positive growth and the tide's about to go out and we're going to be standing there with our dick in our hands. <laughs> what an image. So listen, what has to happen right now in your opinion? For me right now, it's about let's get back to our economic health. That's where we've got to start concentrating. Not in three months' time, now. Premiers of this country have got to listen to the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, the Federal Treasurer and the Federal Prime Minister, the Premiers must listen to those individuals and get the country back up and running so that we can have a happy country. Because you know what? You know, they're all worried about their own personal brands and their own personal positions. Well, I can tell you one thing. Sooner or later, if these, if this country does not pick up and start to get on a good rhythm in terms of getting ourselves back economically healthy, then those premiers and those political parties in those very states, they won't win another election. So they want to protect their ass. They better start protecting it right now because sooner or later, this narrative about COVID, our physical health will drop off and the big narrative is going to be about our economic health. It's going to be about the recession and it's going to be about who's to blame for the recession and that blame will rest solely in the hands of the premiers and the state governments who have kept us from going back to work, back to school and back to doing things in a responsible way. I'm talking about proper distancing and all that sort of stuff. Wash your hands, wear masks if you need to wear masks, but get us back to where we were when we first heard about COVID, not the lockdown period. Yeah. Let's get over the lockdown. So what you're saying is without an integrated future that takes in the health, economy, society, there really is no future. We have to do this now. It's not three months, it's right now. Mm-hmm. Look, if in three months' time we start thinking about this and start saying, oh, well, you know, you can now go to the movies in three months' time, we can have more than 10, 20 people in a movie theatre. What do you want? All the Hoyts and all the cinemas and Greater Union, do you want them all to go broke? 
Yeah. And all the people who work in those places no longer have a job. And by the way, not having a job means you've got no sense of purpose. And by not having a sense of purpose, not only have you got no income, your family suffer because you probably have some mental illness associated with it. And then these things all have a multiplier effect. They affect everybody else. They either scare the person down the road who does that a job or the person down the road now empathises you and they feel bad about what you're doing. They go home and they say to their family, listen, we better stop spending money because we could be next. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be an alarmist here, but we all sat around and listened to the bloody alarmists, the health officials, the alarmists who told us about what COVID's going to do to us and how it's going to stuff up our hospitals and we couldn't get enough equipment to sort out our health officials and our health workers. I get it. We've sorted all that stuff out. We're at a manageable level. I don't want to see a second phase and third phase, 100%. But we, I, I tell you what, I don't want to see a 10-year period of economic woes and economic ill health. Mark Burris is extremely passionate. He says without immediate action on the economic front, trust in society will quickly diminish. Building trust is key in a corporate environment, but how will we as individuals define and frame notions of happiness in uncertain times? Cass Dunn is a clinical psychologist who specialises in helping people to address the question of happiness. She has a podcast called Crappy to Happy on Podcast One. She says our illusion of control over our lives has been shattered. This is a time for exploring and defining notions of personal fulfilment and meaning. So I think what happens in a crisis is we do see, I think initially we can tend to fall into this every man for himself kind of panic. And I think that's partly what we saw with the toilet paper panic buying, like everybody just goes, I've got to keep myself safe and my family safe and every man for himself kind of thing. But that's typically short-lived, I think, because then what typically happens is that we we fall into this more like this social cohesiveness and this whole feeling that we're all in this together. I think that that is our natural kind of human instinct. And I think that that's what we've seen. You know, we see it, we saw it after the floods in Brisbane. We've seen it after the bushfires, like people come out uh, to support each other. There's a real sense of community. So, and we, I think we've been amazing, the things that we've done and sacrificed in a small, in our own small way um, to help us all get through this. Mm. And just looking out for our neighbours and all of that sort of stuff, you know, like just that collective community spirit that tends to come out. When you look at the concept of happiness that's been there prior, in my own life, I kind of look at it and say fulfilment is more important right now, doing something useful For sure. than necessarily being happy. Mm. Yes. I just want to um, clarify too that I use the word happy. My podcast is Crappy to Happy. The books are called Crappy to Happy. But, you know, happy is a word that we all understand. But when I talk about happiness, my definition of happiness is more of a sense of meaning and purpose in life. It's been connected to your values and connected to something that is uh, bigger than our own self-interest. I think that is really, truly what is sustainably fulfilling um, in our lives, as opposed to this fleeting, you know, the whole hedonic treadmill, new house, new car, n- new job, more money, sex, power. You know, those things tend to not sustain us in the long term. They're not the things that make us happy in the long term. So, if there was a shift in that general direction. I mean, we've seen that throughout history too. Viktor Frankl, I was just talking yesterday about Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, you know, during the Holocaust, you know, how he came out of that and he survived and thrived because he found a sense of meaning. And I think that is really what we're all trying to do here, individually, but, you know, hopefully as a collective as well, just trying to find some greater good. I ask my own community, like, if you ask yourself, like, what good could come from this? It just helps to shift your perspective a little bit. 
as you're doing your clinical work and you say to somebody, they're there, you know, you'll be okay. Well, how we can't be certain at the moment and you have to kind of have an element of here's the toolbox, you'll have to use it for whatever comes. Mm, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, we don't know what's happening and all we can do is take care of ourselves today. What we've lost is the illusion of control, like the illusion of certainty, right? It was never guaranteed to begin with. And there have been every single day people lose their jobs and their spouses and die in accidents and get terrible diagnoses. This is the human condition anyway. Like this is different. The rug can be pulled out at any time. What lessons might we learn from this and how might we change the way we live and where, where do we find our, our joy what are the connections that are the most meaningful? So many of our relationships are so superficial and that's fine, but who are the people that really matter? What are the things that really matter? So let's just take a moment here. It's a time to reassess what's important to us and use this time to create opportunity to change, according to Margie Hartley. Mark Burris wants us to get back to work and kickstart the economy. Cass Dunn has said we've lost the illusion of control and there's no going back. More importantly, we must move forward with a new sense of reality. Tom Tilley is the host of The Briefing podcast on Podcast One. He's hosted youth-oriented radio programs for a decade. He's concerned about the endurance of younger people who are unused to hardship. On The Briefing this week, we were talking to Ian Hickey and he made this point that really stood out to me that recessions hit young people hardest. So, you know... The, the, the real health fears around the pandemic will hopefully be relatively short-lived, but the economic impacts, you know, will go on for years. And, you know, you see the casual work has gone first um, and, you know, the flow-on effects from, from there um, affecting all those young workers. So I really worry about how much that's going to that's gonna hurt people. Yeah, in terms of work... Uh- this last decade or so has all been about the gig economy, which has seemed to be an empowering thing when people wanted to have options in their life and do other things. But suddenly it's a disempowering thing when you have no super, no uh, holidays, no nothing, just just your hourly rate. Do you think that will continue and people will be happy to go back into that gig economy? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the flexibility is good, but maybe we haven't had the wake-up call around security that we, we have now. And so that I think that probably will make people value security more, knowing that you know they've got ongoing employment. Um, I'm 39 now, so I can remember the um, recession in the 90s a little bit, but not really. Don't really remember anyone I know feeling any real pain. I sort of remember more the, the politicking around Paul Keating saying we had to have it. Um, but yeah, we haven't gone through a big economic hardship. We've actually gone through a massive growth in wealth um, in societies like Australia over the last few decades. So it's going to be pretty tough times ahead and really interesting to see the way people react. Yeah. How do we feel in terms of our resilience at this moment? Are we seeing people being able to cope with this or is it just, is it a real shock? I think it's both. I think it's a, a shock and people are coping. I think there's actually tons of positivity. And I think for young people, there are lots of systems that, you know, felt like they, they disempowered young people and they're sort of breaking open and, and changing in some of the structures in our society around 
work, for example, are getting a rethink as we have this excuse to to rethink the way we live and the way we work and do things differently. Yeah, I notice at the moment there's a certain euphoria uh, coming out of this, that we're coming out of isolation. There is the prospect of the superhero model where the the boxed-up pharmaceutical solution is given to us, no more coronavirus vaccine, we go forward. But what if there is no vaccine? And what if we have this coronavirus as a seasonal flu the next two, three, even four years? How will people's state of mind be going by that time, that siege mentality will continue. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think um, at the moment we're sort of seeing this nice, neat narrative that, you know, in March we were looking at a devastating um, prognosis and then Australia responded well, got out in front. We're now part of this exclusive club of nations that have dealt with it really well and are moving to relax um, our lockdown measures but yeah if it if we then have to lock down further again and there's surges in the infection rate and we realize that oh this is years not months that could be a really depressing moment in the first weeks after isolation there was optimism amongst our commentators the pandemic offered opportunity rather than destruction They could see change and growth as old ways of thinking were swept away. But what if this isn't over? If science can't produce an effective vaccine, coronavirus could be with us next year and the year after. How will the lucky country, The Economist magazine's Wonder Down Under, be travelling in that scenario? It seems like it's up to us. It will be fascinating to see how we approach the coming months. How we reset our own values as people and as a nation. How business and political leaders make the hard decisions with no playbook to guide them. Most importantly, we'll see if we can maintain the social cohesion that helped us flatten the curve of infection. Can we adapt and thrive in this new normal, making sure no one is left behind? Right now, the future is less predictable than it ever was. These are uncharted waters but the course ahead is ours to set. You've heard the views of our distinguished voices. Whether these views hold true in months to come and what actually comes to pass, we'll just have to wait and see. The Great COVID Reset is written and produced by Adam Shand. Mixing, editing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Shan. Graphics by Jamie Lee Garner. The Great COVID Reset is a Podcast One Australia production.